Then let's forget what we should have done earlier and continue with what we should do now. So, first haircut in uh, over a year. Yeah, I'm I'm looking forward to it. Thank God that I, I like I have hair down to like my shoulders now, which is uh, as long as it's ever been. And it's far too heavy on top of my head, and it's gross, and it's summer now, and I don't want it anymore. Uh, this experiment has gone on. I'm glad that it happened. I'm not going to do it again. Yeah, well, unless we have another pandemic. Well, yeah, I suppose that's true. I can't really help that. I might just buy a pair of clippers. Yeah, just manually learn to, learn to do it yourself, even if it's not a, a good job, and, and as long as it's not long. <laughs> right. Just get it off of me at this point. Yeah. Well, I uh, I had the good I had the good fortune of uh, my stepmom uh, does hair, so I was able mm. to since, since I would still occasionally see her anyways. I'd get a haircut from her a couple. I got two all two during the course of the pandemic, which is two more than most people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, most responsible people. Anyway, I guess we should uh, jump into it. Good, uh, whatever time you're listening to this, everybody. I'm Phil. And I'm Kyle. And we are the Unsociableists. And we, uh, we, I know we miss May Day, but we think that it's pretty important we finally do an episode covering workers' rights and how they basically don't exist in capitalism. Yeah, today we're kind of going to focus on a little bit of our own personal experience with the workplace, obviously, because it's like the easiest way for us to discuss it. But also, uh, we've brought a bit of history with us just to talk a little bit of why a little bit why the uh, the deck is so stacked in favor of capital and against labor organizing. Yes, as always, Kyle has done a swath of research that I get to benefit from and sound like I'm at least kind of smart. I wouldn't. I don't know if I'd call it research. I, uh, I, it looks like research for me when you read say. books and pull up quotes. I suppose. I suppose. <laughs> Anyway, yeah, Kyle and I do work quite different jobs, as uh, as we've addressed. I work in a union grocery store. Yeah, and I right now, like most of my jobs, it's it's contract, and I I edit video and do animating stuff that sounds fun on paper. Brian, Brian would be fun if uh, they would actually let you work on rel- stuff that you know had any meaning to anything. Yeah, yeah, but instead, we're just going to exist as a tech company that just pads the portfolios of these guys who you know trade bitcoin like that's their that's their contribution to society so hopefully between both of our uh, sets of anecdotal evidence coupled with again kyle's research we should be able to uh, give you some fun perspective i guess i uh, i guess we can probably just jump in starting with uh what uh the fun nature of a union grocery store now a lot of people i mean i i, I am a lot of people myself included are very very pro-union and you should be but a lot of those same people don't realize that not all unions are created equally and when i think about food workers unions especially all over the country versus unions like metal worker union metalworking unions uh automotive unions it reminds me of that meme with the giant buff dog and then the scrawny derpy looking dog side by side <laughs> yeah it's yeah. totally that one where uh the uh the doge but the the buff doge is the uh industrial workers unions who are well i guess those are aren't industrial they're still trade unions but the ones that have a long history of like i guess militant organizing but yeah, those uh, metal workers, automotive unions like that, for example, uh, they all, across the board, jobs in those fields start at a living wage. And it varies uh, state to state, but you're never going to find one paying under $15 an hour. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. 
it should be said that even those unions are being undercut quite often when they're talking about shipping uh like when trump was in and had his when he first kicked off his trade war with china that was a lot of it was about steel and about how american steel is coming from china and other sources right now uh, that's not coming from pittsburgh you know there used to be a massive uh union presence there still is a somewhat of a union presence but the jobs that that union served no longer exist in pittsburgh right so it's not to say that, you know, each and every one of these unions that exist, you know, whether or not they're created equal, which they aren't, you know, they're all suffering from a similar predicament in in this neoliberal form of capitalism. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But when you compare it to food workers unions, where most most food workers unions start their employees at minimum wage, which is one of the key things that what's the what's the point of a union? If you're, you know, if you're going to start at minimum wage, it seems uh, like, why am I paying union dues to you to not get me any kind of, you know, benefit in terms of the, ca- the capital construct we're forced to live in? Right. You'd think that they'd eat at least add on top of minimum wage the cost of the dues. Yeah, if nothing else. But no, and it's, uh, it's especially bad out in Las Vegas. Their food workers union uh, pays less than a third of what the state considers to be a living wage. And that's only because the state's minimum wage is there, you know? Yeah. Plus, they're in Vegas, which is not – I mean, uh, I lived out west for a while, and I stopped in at Vegas a couple of times. I didn't really do a lot of gambling because that's not what I usually do. But it's a fun town. Lots of shows. Lots of cool shit. Weed. Weed's legal, so that's cool. Yeah, it's not a cheap town, and folks who are working in those, in the casinos, in the uh, restaurants, and all up and down the Strip, and probably, it's a larger city than just the Strip, but that's, I assume, where a lot of the food workers are concentrated. Uh, yeah, it's it, it would be tough to live there without a, a reasonable wage. Yeah, when... Uh... I mean, the, 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 the uh, state minimum wage in Nevada is kind of a joke already compared to the cost of living there. So mm-hmm. so that's one area where food workers unions t- seem to come up short, but it doesn't stop there. So you're with your average union, say you don't like the conditions. Oh, man, this job uh, this job kind uh, is not treating me well enough. I, I deserve to be making more. I deserve more benefits for whatever reasons. One of the whole points of a union is that it allows workers the chance to strike. And most unions, when they're striking, have a thing called work offers, which is literally, hey, while you're while you guys are striking, we can't pay you your full wage, but we can pay you enough to certainly make ends meet. You know, and like I know for a matter of fact, the automotive uh, automotive union, they will continue to pay fifteen dollars an hour, forty hour weeks for the entire time the employees are striking, up to like I think there's a certain limit of number of months, but if they're striking for that many months, then something's probably gone wrong elsewhere. Was it the strike that the UAW? Uh had a couple what that had to be over a year ago now but um back during the primary was that the strike that Pete Buttigieg just comes right up and is like so uh huh? how long yes, do you think was... y'all can hold out yeah yuck <laughs> yeah that was uh that was hello fellow one, kids i'm definitely not a pinkerton fantastic one of those fantastic times that the democratic puppet showed just how uh just how much they couldn't give a shit about the working class the guy is such a fucking idiot like your dad is a noted translator of Gramsci. You should know not to ask if the war coffers are gonna empty at a specific time. But you know those war coffers are uh, definitely a valuable resource for the the event of employees being mistreated and feeling that they can do better. Most food workers unions don't have them. Just flat out, nope. If you're gonna strike, figure it out. Hope you have good savings. Fucking absurd. Yeah. 
And uh, I can't use the anecdotal evidence I'd like to here because I could get very fired for it. But I will just say that there was a local strike that was very prospective and seemed very likely to happen. And then between fuckery and a complete lack of war coffers, the the, uh, employees in question were basically shut down from being able to actually follow through on that strike. Right. And instead had to take a shitty contract. And it's insane that, that you could face consequences in a union job, that you could face consequences for talking about the union's policy and a lack of solidarity really fucked over a lot of people and i think that this is in, that this is uh like i don't want to cut you off but i'm just thinking of uh how the afl was kind of created back you know way back in like the late 1800s the american federation of labor which we'll know now as the afl cio combining with the congress of industrial organizations the CIO, of course, being essentially a, uh, a CIA cutout, but it's, it reminds me that these tactics of, of control of, uh, within uh, the union structure have existed because, you know, the, the capitalists have had a good long time to know what a union does and what, how a union works. They've sent in scabs, and sometimes it's worked and sometimes it hasn't, but something that they've done incredibly well especially since the neoliberal turn, but I would say probably even prior to that, is to have to capture the leadership of these union organizations. Yeah, and uh, sadly, that's very prevalent in uh, food workers unions, especially where the leadership of these unions are not on the side of the workers, but on the side of corporate interests and their uh, friends who actually run the companies. Right. They meet the people that own the businesses that they're supposed to be representing the workers of and they hang out that's insane to me the, to the no you know i won't yeah again, drop, i won't name die. drop to get you screwed but you'd be a, i will say this if you know who i'm talking about then you've already inferred it yeah you can figure it out y'all all right we officially call this meeting to order. The main item on the docket is the discussion regarding a strike of the Balaclavaville local UFCW 666 now, first, let's make sure all the parties are in attendance. Jim Jammers, negotiation representative for the local 666. Well, obviously, I'm present. Albert Everyman, representative of the 666 employees. I'm present, but shouldn't there be more than one person representing the workers? We're just taking roll call right now. We can address concerns like that soon. Local 666 union head, Dane Cool. I'm here, Brosif. Let's get this show on the road. And lastly, Shonks CEO, Tom Shonks. Present. Okay, so me being the only worker representative is bad enough, but isn't it all kinds of unethical for the corporate CEO to be a voting member at our union meetings? You make a valid point, Al. Let's have a vote on whether Mr. Shonks can stay or not. And naturally, I abstain. I vote he leaves. Uh, Tom and I are old buddies. There's no way I'm voting to kick him out. He stays. I also vote that I stay. Ooh, sorry, Albert, you're outvoted. Can't you see how fucked up it is that Dane literally just admitted to having a conflict of interest? How will any of these votes be fair if he's just going to side with his golf buddy? Mr. Everyman, we freely advise that you watch your language, or you'll be removed from this meeting. Anyways, on to the discussion of the workers' intention to strike. I negotiated as hard as I could on your behalf and got a contract that'll guarantee you all 20-cent raises up for the next three years. That's up from the five cents they were offering originally. That's still really awful. We asked originally for a dollar. If that's the best you can do, we're definitely striking. Hey, chill out, man. 
You know that since a new contract was proposed, you still have to wait another five days before you can legally strike. Well, consider this our notice that we still intend to strike. Now hold on a second. How about this? In five days, Jim and I will cook up a version of the contract that gets you 21 cent raises, and then we can do this vote again. Mr. Shanks, that's really taking advantage of us. Jim, you try to get us something better, right? You're supposed to be representing us, not corporate interests. Well... Jim represents whatever interests I tell him to. That is, if he wants to keep his job with all those benefits. Oh, come on! Surely you can see how exploitative this relationship between our union and the corporate control is. Okay, now, how about this, Al? I don't think I can get you up to a dollar, but maybe Mr. Shonks will agree to 30 cents in exchange for slashing all of your health care benefits. Yes, I'm definitely in favor of that. That's so much worse! Oh, so you like the 20-cent version, then? Well, hold on, hold on. If I get the workers to give up their insurance, I'm sure I could get an extra boat out of the deal. Right, Tommy? I'm sorry, Dane. Doesn't sound like Al here is going to go for it. You're damn right I'm not going to go for it. This whole meeting is such bullshit. Just let us strike. I warned you about language, Albert. I propose we vote on ejecting Mr. Everyman from this meeting. I'm in favor. Me too, man. As am I. Oh, that's a majority. Get on out of here, Al. How the hell are you going to have a meeting discussing union workers' rights without having any union workers present? Probably with a lot less foul language. Now, don't make me have security escort you out. That'd be awkward for all of us. Yeah, 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 yeah. Go fuck yourself. Man, that guy was seriously harsh in my mellow. Anyway, do you want to have a vote on that contract now? Indeed. All in favor of the contract as it currently stands? Aye. Aye. Excellent. With that done, Dane, your new jet ski is waiting in the bed of your new pickup truck. You're the man, Tommy. I'll see you at the links this weekend. Ah, it's always nice to have a union meeting where everyone leaves happy. Anyways, back to the good, uh, well, better unions. I mean, America's, America's good unions are definitely becoming more and more sparse because corporate interests just are like that. But, you know, the better unions, those jobs, is, uh, and I realize they do have a trade skill is a little more impressive than grocery work in terms of the time put in to get those jobs. But, you know, in, in compensation, uh, you can you will start those jobs with multiple weeks of vacation right right away. Boom. You got vac- you got a few weeks of vacation just f- from the get go. On the other side, food workers unions. Uh, I have not I have worked at uh, a couple different stores, and this is a true across the board because it's a, I think it's a union policy, not a store policy. You have to work two full years before you even get your first week of vacation time. Insane. Yeah, one week you know, you don't you you, could, you should be able to work through, uh, just straight through 730 days without a single without a single day off. Well, I mean, you have two days off a week naturally, but not with you know without any uh, larger gaps. Obviously, that's just common sense. If you can't handle that, then you know what even is this? Not to mention that with. Your stores in particular, they're not guaranteeing you a full 40 hours of work. So in that that time, you may still, like, despite the fact that you're not allowed to take any vacation until the two years are up, you're still working, you know, minimum wage, uh, probably somewhere between 32 and 39 hours. Mm-hmm. Because if they don't give you for it, and that's another thing, a lot of these food workers union jobs will, will make sure their part time people stay below 38 hours. And that number actually keeps going up. It used to be 35, now it's 38. And mm. there's uh, the, our next, and the new contract that just passed for our sister union, now it's 39. 
That's insane. If you, you can if you're just below be like, well, you, you didn't work one extra hour. Yeah, they keep you from working the full 40 specifically to make sure that uh, you don't you aren't eligible for benefits after a certain number of weeks of doing that. Yeah, I think that that's like I, I so just to clarify, like I don't think either of us necessarily disagree with the organization as it's like uh, the 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 unions type as of, attended. Yeah, unions and trade unionism as like a tendency definitely i think has a lot of purpose i think that's very obvious i think the issue really arrives when it gets to these points where it's been captured and influenced by the industri- well the industrial bosses the bosses the owners the uh, the people who have capital you know this is where previously this used to be called like the those who were working in say uh, the UAW or in the IBEW, in in trades that are relatively well-paying, um, that you know, back in the day, you could provide for your family on a single income, get a two-car garage, and be all hunky-dory out in the burbs yeah, with the white picket fence and the whole yeah. nine yards, whole nine yards. And it had its place, and it created something called a, la- a labor aristocracy. And that's because, uh, you know, it, in between, you know, we have teachers' unions, we have electricians unions we have steel workers unions iron workers unions we have every other trade every individual trade and something like the AFL-CIO is kind of an interesting attempt at combining these trades into a single bargaining power and the same thing was done with uh, Harry Haywood and um, I believe was it Eugene Debs? Eugene Debs, the socialist uh, of the mid-century who led the Pullman strike very famously. I believe they put up the IWW, a much more uh, radical organization, but one that, of course, was undercut after World War II. And so these, the, the, the system of the AFL-CIO, which you know, nominally said that it was going to bring together trades to form like an industrial, an American industrial union beyond every individual piece you have to look at it like it's an industry like say if i'm trying to organize all the adjuncts at a college into a union i'm also asking the people who uh, work in the sanitation staff i'm also asking the people who work in the cafeteria work as assistants in the library you're working across the industry as opposed to your specific tradecraft of adjunct teaching right Mm -hmm. and so the afl of course solidifies instead the trade divisions and you know uh, while they may organize in a sense that they can vote for whatever person drumka chooses they they aren't going to organize to in solidarity strikes which are illegal now they're not going to organize in uh any way that actually affects what the most what the most direct form of authoritarianism is which is your boss's authority over you yeah because if you don't want to keep the money flowing for the bosses then you don't get to keep the money flowing for your own eating food yeah it's gompers gompersisms gompersism samuel gompers the guy who set up the afl essentially just been like i hate socialists and i hate communists and uh fuck all of y'all we're going to sell out to the FBI and the CIA. Well, he died before the CIA came in, but you know, yeah, but he definitely did it for the FBI and for the the Pinkertons and all them. Yes, and it is unfortunate that uh, since then our 
capitalist uh, control over the workers has gotten even worse uh, and unions have had less re- less and less recourse but back to the unions that actually actually I would say the last major distinction that I'd say stands out between good unions and shitty unions is uh, in a in a well in, a, in most trade unions basically across the board comprehensive health insurance is either included in union dues or available to members of the union for pennies on the dollar relative to what an insurance company would charge. Meanwhile, sadly, at a food workers union, the insurance that is sold that is the affordable option often includes nothing, literally nothing, basically. Anecdotally speaking, I can say that I don't even get a free doctor's visit each year for my insurance. One doctor's visit, and you're, you're paying for it, and you never get it. You don't even get one fucking doctor's visit. And if you want actually good insurance through your union, then the prices really aren't – at a food workers union, the prices really aren't even that much better than a standard insurance company. Right. You might as well go on to the private marketplace because that's what they're trying to do. People like their insurance through their jobs. That's why we can't have Medicare for all. Hey. I, I, I'm trying to do. I can't do a Biden. I'm going to need to work on that. I'm going to work on my I, I, I mean I need to work on my Biden too. It's Listen, still got a lot. People, they want to do their jobs. They want to go to work and uh, get their – they don't want to go to the marketplace. I'm, I'm sorry, man. Uh, yeah, my, I'm sorry. My time is out. My time is out. God, remember His that. time is oh, up God. in like a physiological sense. I don't know he how is. he's walking. Have you heard the <laughs> – did you hear the most recent – well, one of the most recent things is he's back on the gaff train, and I like it because it – reminds me how stupid he is uh, when they finally let him out in front of things for this memorial day he goes to tulsa and he's like yeah. listen mac uh they, they got uh, uh interracial couples in uh, commercials now they're selling soap man like what wow yeah. <laughs> oh god I mean, he's 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 like she she the... looks like a 19 year old with her legs crossed oh, oh yeah, wow I did, I, yep like, I, uh, oh, I definitely heard about fun. that one and that's it's just amazing. I, I don't know. It's amazing that he can say this stuff and the Democrats just eat it up. But and they don't and they can't draw a single parallel to Trump saying the exact same stupid kind of stupid shit. Well, if they don't um, and eat it blowing up, a f- gasket. Yeah, if they don't eat it up like they did with um, him being adversarial to those reporters when they were asking oh, yeah, about uh, Palestine, can... like they just don't report it. I couldn't find. I found the you know video of him talking about that young girl who he was objectifying in a very creepy way but the Tulsa stuff I only could find uh, reporters on the ground tweeting about it and then the New York Post and the uh, what Fox News a bunch of conservative outlets would cover it but the first thing that I found that wasn't like very obviously conservative was PolitiFact which didn't talk about the actual claim it just there was like they were wasting their time fact checking facebook posts about whether or not biden made out with a 15 year old girl in this picture which no he didn't but it's like is that really the uh, important takeaway here yeah we're talking about crazy people on facebook instead of him actually saying hey man there's like uh they're selling soap they got oh i'm sorry man i'm going home No, there have been more than one occasion where to prove to my father that Biden actually said something, I had to go to a tabloid website to find the video footage of him saying it because Which it wasn't Which is then immediately followed up with like, oh, you can't trust them. That's fake news. It, it, but it's video footage. It's, it's like video. he's on video. I, uh, you, uh, What? It's not like you deep fake him. 
They should just be deep faking. Yeah. I mean, I get that a tabloid website is not where I would want to find that video footage. I would love to find it at CNN or on you or on one of the mainstream media YouTube pages, but it's just not on any of them. Yeah. <laughs> uh, welcome to a non-biased, uh, non-propaganda news media that we have here. Yeah. But anyways, like I was saying, I, I'm still very, 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 very pro-union, but sadly, uh, trade unions are less good than they were 50 years ago and food workers unions are an insult to unions everywhere so you know workers definitely getting screwed even if they have a union and it is unfortunate not to say that we shouldn't try to unionize no definitely organize at your workplace if you can although i did um not to not to change that opinion i i still believe it but um they were talking about on the a recent chapo maybe the most recent one about the uh Morales campaign for mayor of New York. She used to work for Bloomberg back during his horrific tenure as mayor, but um, she came back, of course, to run for mayor this time with the whole abuse of woke language, essentially trying I'm to... The, I'm, the, I'm the real progressive here. Right. Just peeling off enough votes to, you know, the, the Warren voter type, you know, those folks that look for the rhetoric and that's about it. Well, I should say the Kamala type. In any case, the campaign workers apparently wanted to unionize, and they were saying, like, maybe, you know, like, when you are, and this is a thing that I think Matt Crisman is on a lot about, especially in his uh, streams. He's talking about what it is to be a part of a group that sacrifices things, not just for, you know, personal interests, which, of course, uh, a union is about personal interests. It's about class interests, and that's a good thing. But... They were talking about it like, you know, when you are organizing a uh, campaign, sometimes you're sacrificing your personal interest for a larger project. And I think that there's something to say about that for sure. But in general, I think that the larger project in America should be organizing your workplace. I don't think we can spend all our time in our heads and I don't think we can spend all our time aiming at some grand project. Uh, you know, as much as I want the revolution to come, there are going to be steps in that direction. And one of those steps, I think, is creating a strong, organized labor contingent. And it's going to be really fucking hard, especially right now. We can talk about some of the legal barriers to that kind of thing. Yeah, it's uh, definitely, I mean, it's definitely a challenge for one, of course, because uh, an organized labor, labor contingent is uh, always going to be frowned upon by our corporate overlords in the sense that they will then say, well, ooh, well, maybe we'll just have to hire people who aren't so, who aren't trying to come together and uh, take take away our fine capitalist values. Right. It's always been that way. Um, I think that, you know, historically, we... We are at a, an all-time low in union organization since the kind of advent of it. Mm -hmm. I, I don't want to say that it's going to be easy because it won't, but it's it seems like the next best step. But yeah, there is just the unfortunate fact that uh, in terms of unified, unified labor and uh, especially trying to unify against uh, being oppressed as workers, striking if you're not part of a union-confirmed group that should be striking can not only be seen as hostile and could lose your job, but can actually be full-on illegal. Yes. Which is uh, really, really cool, guys, America. Yeah, we, we're all about freedom here in America, which is why if you don't work, we can throw you in jail. Yep. And make you work. 
for no money. For no money, yeah. We'll we'll put you in the reformed slavery category. Yep, we'll take it from the top. <coughs> Beautiful. I'm not doing Red Scare, but... <laughs> the Adventures of Zorzan and Aglob, Episode 5, Money for Nothing. Friend Zorzon, I have completed an analysis of the primary form of exchange on Earth. Apparently, there is a commodity known as money, and it is used as a signifier which allows the humans in most of the world to have numerical values assigned to all the resources on the planet. This even includes intangible resources such as labor. Well, that sounds convoluted. Why give people this arbitrary thing for their work just to make them use it on what they need and want in life? Would it not make more sense to skip the middle step? I thought so as well. However, I found that the allotted number of monies provided to an individual for a given type of work varies wildly. Across most forms of employment, the workers who do the majority of the labor are given, or paid as the earthlings call it, very little money. Those who hold ownership of the enterprise are then given the excess. Excess what? Sadly, I stumbled here as well. These owners of laborers, which seems unethical in its own right, do not have large swaths of actual resources in their multiple domiciles. In general, they just have more money. Often, much more money than the added cost of all the resources that would provide for each of those laboring below them in this hierarchy. Let me get this straight. Most people down there are doing nearly all the work to maintain the production and availability of essentials like food, water, and shelter. They are then given this commodified non-resource for doing this. However, the fake assigned value does not correlate to the toil required to generate the actual resources. As such, there's a drastic amount of leftover fake non-resource that's given to someone who puts forth little or no labor. Am I understanding this correctly? Yes, that's does seem essentially correct. That does not make any sense. Why don't the laborers take resources to make up the difference in their fake value? Why should they allow their toil to be exploited for this excess? Apparently, most laborers over a certain age have been convinced that the disparity between their created value and their allotted value is completely valid, citing the ingenuity of creating new forms of exploitation as something to be substantially rewarded. Additionally, even those who do see the injustice of this predicament are given an ultimatum by the system they toil under. Let me guess. Take the bare minimum to keep surviving under the owner's rule, because if you stop providing your labor, you'll stop surviving. Indeed. Well, simply looking at the sheer numbers of the toilers as compared to the exploiters, surely the workers know that if all of them refuse to work, their oppressors will have no recourse but to provide more access to resources. Otherwise, there would be none of this pointless excess they crave in the first place. Anyway, our previous analyses of Earth showed that, at this point in history, there are more than enough resources and the technical ability to collect them to provide comfort for all living there. There have been inklings of such awareness, in which labor is withheld for better conditions. They call this striking. Regrettably, oftentimes, those who control the businesses have no moral quandary replacing the laborers with new laborers who are also willing to compromise their morals for the promise of access to those same resources the striking laborers are no longer requiring. Hmm, so, until a huge percentage of workers decide to face the fear of starving in the cold, things won't get much better for them. 
That is bleak, Aglob. I really hope they can overcome having this pointless money stuff. In the meantime, I'm just really glad that our civilization uses its bounty to allow every one of us to enjoy our lives, traveling across the cosmos and examining worlds such as this. Maybe by our next visit, the working class here will revolt against the evil systems abusing them. We can only hope, friend Zorzan. Tune in next week for more Adventures of Zorzan and Arglob. I want to just hop into this because um, I think one of the interesting things about union organizing in America, like early on, obviously, the I don't want to I don't want to seem like I'm pining for the days of 1880 where you go out to your uh, railroad car that you were working and just like shut down all the tracks and then uh, Pinkerton would come and shoot you or the National Guard would come and kill you. Uh, I don't want to make it seem like I think that it's a perfect world, but it is something to say that like that's that was bravery that I don't think exists in the current moment. I don't think that there's the same kind of and I'm I'm obviously not a brave person. I work at a stupid contract job that I sacrifice my soul to for no fucking reason. But those kinds of strikes, those kinds of militant, like shutting down railroads, shutting down whole cities, you know, when the garment district went on strike, the industrial unions also went on strike. You know, the steel workers stopped working, the electricians stopped working. You basically shut down the economy, which is what a strike truly is. And it's that kind of recognition of material circumstances that makes a strike so powerful and why we can't do that today is partly as a result of the institution of what is known as the taft hartley act in 1947 a modified version of the national uh, labor relations act which in the 30s had kind of started basically trying to codify the, the the a path towards unionization for industry and of course in 1934 whenever that was passed the mood was a bit more in favor of labor right the existence of uh, unions was accepted. People were suffering horrifically from the excesses of capital that plunged the world into the Great Depression. There were just giant, giant cities of hovels, not unlike what we see today in places like L.A. and all over the fucking world. Uh, all around, all too many world. people thinking they deserved basic human rights for the doing work. Right, and so the uh, militant unions those who struck and struck together were oftentimes run by people like eugene debs a a socialist or you know we have people like bill haywood we have people who are radicals people who are organizing alongside communists you know whether or not all of the union members or all of the people in the party agreed on things we all they all agreed that labor power would be a massive part of uh, uh, of making the world a better place for them. And I want to read uh, just a little bit from Michael Parenti's book, The Politics of News Media. This is, I'm going on like just another one of those things where I, I'm reading one book and it's it's just I mean, Michael Parenti, Parenti. seems like a very, very uh, cognizant guy with a lot of great stuff to say, so I don't rules. blame you one bit. 
He also does like uh, he did a history book that's specifically about Julius Caesar and like he's got like Roman history shit that I really want to listen to. But most of the stuff that he's mostly famous for is this kind of Cold War philosophy, not philosophy, Cold War like histories and post-Cold War analyses of of the media and of anti-communism. This is a quote from Inventing Reality, The Politics of the News Media by Michael Parenti. In 1947, Congress passed the Taft-Hartley Act, written word for word by representatives of the National Association of Manufacturers, according to Congressman Donald O'Toole of New York. The new law repealed many of the hard-won gains of the pro-labor legislation of the previous decade. It reinstituted injunctions to break strikes and the court's power to impose heavy fines. It outlawed mass picketing, secondary boycotts, and the closed shop. It authorized employer interference in workers' attempts at unionizing and right-to-work anti-union laws at the state level. It prohibited unions from ejecting companies' spies as long as they paid their dues. Owners could now refuse to bargain collectively, even by shutting down their plants, and could destroy union treasuries with expensive court suits. Taft-Hartley also required union officials to sign non-communist oaths. Those who refused were ejected from their positions. It's fucking gross. It's just very obviously anti-labor. This this went over uh, Harry Truman's veto, and I'm not a fan of Harry Truman. I mean, he created what is the modern CIA and all of the horrific things and had that they've a pretty done. Big good uh, good hand in the nuclear bomb. Right. He dropped two bombs. The, 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 he's the only person. No, we're not praising him, but it doesn't change the fact that it, when it, even the president's like, we should have a modicum of sanity about how we treat our workers, and the uh, people behind the, the people behind the curtain, as it were, are like, no, no, mo- no, no, no money for the workers. We don't, we don't believe in that. No rights. It's literally a, as said by a congressperson that he got this written word for word by people in the National Association of Manufacturers, which is kind of an archaic group it's 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 essentially like the guys who ran u.s steel and standard oil and all of that fun stuff and although i, mean, I suppose not... at that time standard oil would have probably been broken up so yeah what is it then texic not texaco the other ones uh, and, uh exxon yeah exxon, exxon uh, thank you it was exxon, exxon mobile, mobile, yeah. who then rejoined to become exxon mobile again so it's yeah. like so you guys didn't actually break up whatever yeah. whatever <laughs> Yeah, and also, I mean, going back to that quote, and the other thing that stands out to me is, of course, the uh, the right to work laws. That just one of the most hypocritical names for any kind of law set to try to mislead the public. Um, those laws. I'm I'm grateful to li- to live in a state that is not a right to work state yet. Yeah, despite the fact that they've voted against it three times, four times, and the fucking Senate and state legislator just keeps bringing that shit back up. So like, are you sure you don't want? Are you sure you don't want to be obligated to work a job or be in a, a lawbreaker? Hey, look, doesn't that sound like great? Really want to undercut unions, and don't you want to not spend dues? You could spend that money on an Xbox. Yeah, and I mean, I, I know I just spent a bunch of time belittling food workers' unions, but I mean, at least at least I know at the end of the day that I'm not going to get fired because they just feel like it. That's the one. That is basically the one thing that uh, even a bad union will do for you. Yeah, thankfully, because that shit happens all the fucking time. Oh yeah, Walmart. Walmart has a thing in their contract that flat out says we can fire you at any time for without any kind of reason given. 
Yeah, but the reason that they're actually thinking of, uh, besides the fact that they're keeping you in a precarious position for, you know, so that you'll work here, is because when you start to accumulate benefits, they can get rid of you for a cheaper worker. Yeah, you, just in general, though, uh, doing the reading that you put out for this episode taught me a lot about Taft-Hartley that I really wasn't very aware of at all beforehand. And uh, it really, uh, it apparently uh, really screwed over a lot of uh, a lot of people very quickly. Yes, it did. It, so I, I want to just mention that right before the passage of Taft-Hartley, like right, right out of World War II, and this is, you know, during World War II, there was a lot of things that were put on hold. Basically, the provisions of Taft-Hartley were not enshrined except as emergency measures uh, in World War II. So you couldn't close the shop and you couldn't really go on strike during the war, which is its own problem. But this essentially made that permanent, right? So at the end of the war, we had hit like a, a, a critical mass of like Michael Parenti said it was at 34% in the private center, uh, union density. And just this past year, that union density is down to 6.3% by the uh, Bureau of Labor Statistics. Uh, so it's basically it's, nothing. Right. It goes to show, like, whether or not you think that you don't know what the critical mass of union membership is or what amount of the workforce needs to be unionized or what specific sectors, if you think we should keep trades or if you think we should go to towards an industrial model, you can see what happens when... 34% was, they gave us the weekend. They gave us 40-hour work week. They gave us the eight-hour work day. They gave us vacation. They gave us all of the things that we take for granted that are now being eroded. Or I should say that previous generations took for I granted. I mean, yeah. There's a reason that the baby boomer generation was like the best one to grow up in if you were a white person. Because yeah. you had all of these wonderful rights that had just been earned for you by strong unionization, and you hadn't yet had the dismantling of the entire American public in the name of uh, capital profit for a few people. Right. You had enough of a safety net underneath you because of the militant organizing of unions and the many people who sacrificed their lives for better working conditions. And instead, they took that and said, well, we are the best generation. We're obviously the people who have done the most work. Um, fuck you. I got mine. Uh, and I don't mean that in in total because obviously they're yeah, not, not all boomers, right? Just like not all men, boomer. but I try not to. Yeah, <laughs> I, mean, I, boomer, say, I try to I try to treat it this not all boomers the same way I treat not all men. It's yeah, it may be true, but I'm not going to bring it up because it's not helpful to the narrative. Well, we can talk about generational stuff later, but you can see just how like even at 34 percent that it created a real safety net for people, and then they immediately noticing that dismantled it. And that's why we have so few protections now. That's why most jobs, most new jobs are turning into the same kind of uh, contract relationship that my job is now. You know, it's not yep. necessarily it, you you aren't guaranteed like your job. You're guaranteed that you won't be fired as much as the the guys who run the union are corrupt and hang out with the owners as much as the owners are just taking massive advantage of you guy uh, of the people who work for them 
you you are guaranteed that you won't lose your job unless you do one of the specific, mostly labor organizing things that are yeah, codified I mean, as a because yeah. I mean the one the one key rule is I can't badmouth the family. Which, so silly. Uh, How is that? That's so fucking silly. How does that work? Anyway, it's I mean it's still it's like I said it's still better than not having a union. Um, and real quick before we jump into gig economy jobs like yours, uh, one recent example of not having a union: the whole Amazon debacle, which definitely wasn't at all a shady vote that hmm. came that had a shifty background behind it. But yeah, companies like Amazon that don't unionize and actively discourage such unionization then try to sell themselves as still good guys, and their most recent uh. Their most recent workers' benefit thing is downright laughable. I'm sure you've heard about it. Oh, I don't know if the I have. affirmation boxes. Oh no? my god, the little boxes that they send yep. them in to do mindfulness or whatever. I'm sure and they walk into their little boxes, just like the company loves you and you love the company. Meditate for two minutes, then get back to being a, the mindless drone you should be. This world's so fucked. Yeah, it's I mean, literally. Like, I, I, it's, I really, rather than give us you, rather than give you decent wages or human rights, we're just gonna let you cry in a box for a couple minutes and then get back to it. I'm fairly certain that I wrote this this level of shitty science fiction dystopia when I was in middle school, and Amazon's just like ripping from the pages of my wide ruled notebook. Legit, if I had written the cry boxes in an episode of Capital F, I'd be like, "No, nah, this is dumb. I'm gonna scrap that's it for dumb. something better." That's hack. Yeah. Oh my god. What a shit world. Ugh, God. We'll have some laughs and get along and always worship Jeff. We'll all pretend America is really moving left. We'll all be happy, trapped in hell, the family bereft. Because when we spell family, we spell it with a capital F. Capital F is filmed in front of a live studio audience. I still can't believe your crazy father is coming to visit. I don't like it when he's here. He gives Robbie funny ideas. <laughs> oh, I know you don't like him, honey, but he'll only be here a couple days. And I can't very well tell my dad to go to hell. Otherwise, when he kicks it, we won't get any of his inheritance. Grandpa's here. Grandpa, it's great to see you. Oh, hi there. How's my favorite little guy doing? My parents made me get a job for the summer. I'm starting at McDumpo's on Monday, and I'm only going to make $12 an hour. Which is a very respectable wage for someone like you. You young people today think you should just be able to work a 40-hour job and pay for whatever you want. <laughs> Don't listen to your pops, Robbie. When I was your age, the minimum wage was $3.35, and that was unreasonably low back then. When your parents were growing up, they were making $7.25, which could hardly pay for anything. Oh, crazies like me were demanding $15 an hour, and that was still less than the equivalent of what me or my dad made. Of course, it's gotten even worse. Now, Dad, we all know you think everyone who works deserves to be paid the amount they make their employer. But come on, that doesn't make any sense. If that happened, how would we have trillionaires like Jeff Bezos? Oh, sweetie, I've told you this a billion times before. 
We shouldn't have billionaires, let alone trillionaires. Don't you think it would be better to take care of several billion people than to let a few people have unusable amounts of wealth? Yeah, Mom, if we prioritized fair compensation, basically everyone would be happier. And anyone else was an evil person to begin with. Oh, I knew this would happen. Every time you're over here, you and Robbie team up. Robbie, go to your room. You're grounded. I won't let you talk back to your mother, and I especially won't have you calling Jeff Bezos evil. Screw you, Dad. I'm gonna go read Marx's theory. I know I can't tell you how to raise your son, but I... You're right. You can't tell me how to raise my son. Oh, I just wish he turned out more like Anna. Oh, where is little Anna? Right here, Grandpa. Do you have any gifts for me to buy my love? Well, I don't think that sort of crass consumerism is particularly healthy, but I do have something for you. I heard you're going to be off fighting in the military soon, and for the record, I think that's a terrible idea. <coughs> but I don't have any say in the matter, so I thought I could at least help you know more about the histories of the places you'll be visiting and the people there that you'll be murdering. <laughs> Since we're in our 15th year of mercilessly killing the people of Palestine, I thought I'd bring you a documentary series detailing the history of the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Hopefully, after watching it, you'll realize how atrocious these wars are and choose to be a conscientious objector. My teacher told me that Palestinians are dirty rat monkeys. Oh, on the contrary. Most Palestinians have been victimized and have their voices silenced whenever any criticism against the Israeli military is levied. Oh, Dad, don't go putting anti-Semitic ideas in Anna's head. I know you mean well, but I guess this just goes to show that old folks are racist. <laughs> <laughs> So unions, unions are important, but they are definitely getting shittier and being resisted more and more. And uh, in lieu of those union jobs, like Kyle was saying, we now have the new world of contractors and gig economy workers. Yeah. The So do you remember in like 2009, 2010, whenever the Obama's recovery kind of started? You know, back mm -hmm. to yeah, when it was when uh, when when we all still had that thought of uh, hope or change or yeah, was it uh, what did he say? Was, I can't remember. Hope or change was the first run, but yeah, yeah, but that yeah. was two thousand nine, ten, and you know he just bails out the banks and essentially takes lending down to like zero percent. If you're a company, if you're an institutional investor, you can get money for essentially free. It's quantitative easing and it's. Uh, in their sense, to kind of create liquidity in the market, which, of course, it did create liquidity in the market, and most of that liquidity went to buying back stocks. Most of that liquidity went into buying up foreclosed homes that Obama didn't protect. But I digress. Part of that liquidity, uh, a lot of the lending was focused into the new sector of tech, right? Like Silicon Valley came out of the 2008 2009 crises really really high on their horse yeah, it's really important that we have uh three different companies creating the exact same product at the same time yeah perfect divided labor. Uh, efficiency but what ends up coming out of this out of this so-called recovery is that um despite the fact that you know it's a huge transfer of wealth to 
the top again, it creates a new class of workers, workers for these tech companies, workers for, um, you know, a number of different sectors. This is before Uber really becomes a thing, but it sets the stage for Uber and Lyft and uh, sets the stage for a lot of the companies now like uh, Instant Cart, these ones that you see that they have workers come in, you know, it's marketed to people to be like, oh, make a couple extra bucks an hour after you work, you know, maybe you want some extra money, but people are making the entirety of their livelihoods off of these horribly paid, unprotected jobs. Mm -hmm. And part of what they've done is thinking specifically about the most recent election cycle. California voted on a proposition that was heavily, heavily propagandized by Uber, who spent millions and millions of dollars to support Prop 22. California's you don't want you don't want you don't want uh, all these people working these Uber jobs to you know have to like have these set up. You want to have that freedom that comes with a job like this, don't you? Right, and they would make people who got into Ubers in California click. Do you support Prop Twenty Two? Whenever they got in, and of course it was you know basically filled out on their phones like with a brochure talking about how all how Prop Twenty Two ensures. Uh, freedom of movement for workers makes sure that they have flexibility. And of course, all those idiots in Cal, I mean, idiots everywhere, but I'm going to say California idiots anyhow right now because no, because right, they're the ones we're talking about in this instance. Right. In any case, most of us are stupid idiots, including me. But these guys in California who are stupid idiots, who are not me, passed the Prop 22, which maintained gig workers as contractors, not employees. You know, that means that you are without any kind of protections for how many hours you work, any kind of protections with the equipment you use, any OSHA protections. You're not working. You you are being ground down as essentially one person who their wage can fluctuate, especially with things like Uber. You know, they started out with Uber because essentially all it is is subsidized travel. All it is is subsidized travel as opposed to the state subsidizing it. It's some rich VC guys who are doing it through i mean it's still the state's money because they're borrowing an insane amount of money but it's mediated through people who can sell this as some sort of asset yeah and then the companies try to spin it as well now we're now that we've uh, set up this freelance structure in our uh, companies if we were to actually treat them as full employees we wouldn't be able to keep these businesses running and you still want to be able to get your food delivered to your door right yeah i mean how is doordash supposed to keep giving you food and charging the uh the restaurants that they're picking up more than it costs to make the food to fucking send it someplace to some jackass in a high rise who's not going to tip. It's just it is hilarious. Well, speaking of not tipping real quick, I just think it's really, really funny that uh, Uber and uh, DoorDash and those, those drivers can actually lose money by taking an order. Oh, yeah, they do. There's, there's screen, there have been screen caps that have been taken like of your total profits for this order were for this delivery were negative two dollars and six cents. You can lose money, and you do lose money. It's impossible to – without the kinds of protections, like what Uber did is kill the taxi union. That's what they were aiming at. That's what they were doing. Uh, what DoorDash is doing is essentially extracting yet again – I mean, there were, when I was a delivery driver, it's not like we had unions or anything – but we, uh, well, delivery driver for pizza and food, I've done a couple of those gigs. But we made, like, not fantastic money because I wasn't unionized and I was still getting screwed and they could still pay you less than enough money to 
than they should because you got tips. But I made more money than an Uber driver. It's it's really upsetting to know that this this is only going this is only getting worse. Yeah, but right? going back to the whole idea of oh these companies couldn't afford to live if they did pay their employees properly, isn't the I mean it's it's just the hypocrisy of capitalism where if it benefits mm-hmm. the rich people then obviously that's capitalism work is intended. But if it might hurt the rich people then we don't have to follow the rules of capitalism anymore. The core rule of capitalism, which is if your business can't stand up and afford to pay its capital that it owes as part of that business, it shouldn't exist as a business. Well, I think that it goes into a bit more of a theoretical bent if we're talking about whether or not capitalism exists. I I think capitalism exists not just as the free market laissez-faire, like survival of the fittest stuff. It exists as a mechanism of control and as a a support system for the, the class domination of the bourgeoisie. So I think that it still is doing exactly as intended when it props up people like Amazon with billions, or or I should say Blue Origin, another Bezos project, with billions and dollars of bailout money. It's still doing the same thing without necessarily believing in that, that core ideological and, and propagandic, what would you call it? Um, that kind of, the idea that the, that capitalism breeds innovation through yeah. competition is is propaganda and it's an ideological stance. It's not necessarily built into a material yeah, form it's, of yeah, capitalism. There's no, factual, there's no factual standard to judge that by. It's simply just said as, a, as fact and we're right. supposed to accept it. Right. And I don't think that it's necessarily at odds. It, it may be a contradiction in terms, but I don't think that it's necessarily a contradiction within capital itself because capital, while it is eating at itself, while it has to fight all the time or you know extract where it can, oftentimes I think that uh, we lose sight that capitalism is not just a method of marketization, but it's also a method of control of domination of one class by another, which it is served by getting bailouts and having being too big to fail or whatever bullshit. No, I, mean, I agree that, that hypocrisy is by design, but it's just it just always strikes me as funny when uh, it's, it's always, oh the good ideas in capitalism will rise to the top, and then it is made very clear to anyone hmm. paying attention that that's not the case, and then literally the opposite will happen. And then you still have so many people defending capitalism as the only good system. Yeah, no, it's it, it is a contradiction. It it's, is something yeah, I that mean, people have. It's it's hard. I guess the part of it is just it is hard to see past the propaganda after so many years of living under it. But True. It does, but True. people, yeah, some people just are too willing to let themselves uh, dive right into it. <laughs> yeah. So I'm like working. I work as a gig worker essentially. I do freelance video editing and photography and video shooting and animating and you know it's something that I got into because I enjoyed it uh, at some point. I believe I did. I. I've I've drank my mem- most of my memories away, but as of this moment, all that I can think of of freelance is like w- within this knowledge or creative or information economy, this gig shit they make us do now with the increased uh, volume of tech companies is it, all I think of is precarity. Freelance is just another word for precarity. It means that at any moment I can be dropped on the whim. Uh, which it can happen, of course, to Walmart workers. This isn't exactly just for contractors, but in a contract, you are on the hook for providing X, Y, or Z, and then they can, if they don't like that, just not pay you. 
they can just run away. Yeah, well, at least Walmart has to pay the hours you worked. And the other thing with Walmart is if you get fired from there, even if they don't give you any kind of reason, you will still be able to collect unemployment afterwards as someone right. who was let go from a job. I think after um, the $300 unemployment boost that was passed in the uh, American Rescue Act, I think that it's going back to freelance contract workers can no longer apply for unemployment. Yeah. Not to mention the other things that are forced on you if you are working in 1099, which now, of course, is is being codified also in the American Rescue Act that gig workers for Uber, for Instant Cart, for those guys, they have to file taxes now on that kind of stuff, even though they're mostly losing money on it, which is just great. Instead of asking Uber or Amazon or the people who are screwing everybody over. Because, of course, Amazon is also one of these places. They also use a lot of freelance work. They also contract out a lot of their delivery, a lot of their, you know, the, their version of, like, the Whole Foods instant cart bullshit. Um, they're contracting that a lot of times. And so now you're going to have to pay not just uh, income tax because you still have to pay income tax as a contractor, but you also have to pay payroll tax, something that is normally paid by the employer on each employee for the hours that they work. And so now you're getting double taxed for basically getting uh, the job with the least amount of protection possible. Of course, uh, the fact that all the while during this, if any perceived slight is committed against the employer, they can let the employee go with no safety net whatsoever. It just increases the precariousness of the situation that you had exactly. mentioned. Yeah, so this is something that I'm, I'm sure that people, like you can find a lot of work on this. Uh, I'm not always a big fan of Jacobin, but they have a good article specifically about the French labor market that's talking about the new gig economy precariat. And the precariat, you know, it's just people who, you know, you can't stop. It's that rise and grind shit, but it's the actual rise and grind shit. It's not the idiots on Twitter who are like, yeah, I get up every day and I check the fucking stock market and then I trade my Bitcoin and then I go ahead and go to work out. But while I'm working out, I'm also taking in rent. I'm doing all this bullshit that actually is just like, you know, rent seeking, just rent seeking like always. Um but the people who actually have to rise and grind are the people in the precariat, the people who, if they stop delivering Instant Cart, they can't afford their car payment. And if they can't afford their car payment, they can't do Instant Cart and they can't do Uber and they can't do all the other myriad things that they are required to do uh, in order to live. So in this new uh, post-recovery uh, world, precaritization is just massively exploding you know it, more and more and more and more of our jobs are being contracted out we're looking at places like you know it, it's constantly whenever they say oh we're going to disrupt this or that industry it's usually by precaritizing the workforce it's about taking away any kind of control that the worker has in his place so that it then becomes a little fiefdom that a single company or a single capitalist can trade their serfs around, you know, for uh, he's going to do instant cart for you. He's going to do Uber for me. And he's trapped in these little worlds where his entire existence is controlled by a little phone, a little app on his phone. There's essentially no way of them getting out because whether so take the example of Uber, you know, you have to pay not just for your gas, but for your maintenance and for your insurance and for your registration. You're covering all of the costs of the constant capital that was, at one point, the hallmark of capitalist 
control. Uh, all the while, uh, they're adding in the fact that if you get a bad delivery that's too far away and no tip, then you will literally pay Uber to let them work for you, to let you work for them. Absolutely. You're essentially uh, – it, it, it's, again, a patronage system in reverse. It's, it's a world of feudal relationships reasserting themselves in capitalism's decay. It's uh, a world of small, petty lords taking control of their group of peasants. And that's what's happening with the precarity of our new gig economy. You're absolutely right, though. This The structure of these gig jobs is designed in such a way that it sends an even more clear message to the laborer, to uh, American laborers that we control uh, – put it in media terms – we control both the horizontal and the vertical. Do not adjust your televisions. <laughs> the capitalist system has max headroomed the entire American population, and there's not much we can do about it. But again, unions help, but those are not really available in a gig worker construct because they keep, they intentionally keep people divided. And actually, to that end, we are told at our job like to to leave the Instacart people alone when we see them around the store. Of course. Just, yeah, just don't talk not to them. Not help them, not talk to them, obviously, because I have to do gigs. I've worked with a lot of people who, in order to make ends meet, I've been incredibly lucky. I've been helped by my friends and my family along the way, I've been able to create this kind of artisanal, uh, and, and I mean that in the old way, not in like the new craft beer way, but like uh, a life as kind of an artisan who owns my own tools, I own my computer, I own my drives, I own my camera. And that was a huge investment and set me back for a really long time. But thankfully, I've been lucky enough that most of my clients have paid me on time. I've had to take really dumb gigs that... Uh, set me out and I lost money on. Um, I've had to do incredibly stupid things for people who, because of the nature of my work, are never satisfied because it is a, I wouldn't call it an art form, but it's definitely like a creative medium that some people just don't really respect the, the, the level of work that goes into it. And not to say that this is uh, my my precarization, the fact that I can lose my job at any point, the fact that I can uh, not be paid is still not quite so blatantly exposed, like the contradictions of precarity that are exposed by Uber drivers living in their car. This this gig economy has existed for a long time. It's just expanding, right? They used to pay people uh, un undocumented workers. They'd used to pay them cash or under the table um, to go pick plants to get fruit and vegetables. It's just that that kind of serfdom, that kind of precarity is expanding into other forms of labor as the, uh, the rate of profit continues to fall. And so while we're getting more and more billionaires, maybe going to get a trillionaire in a little while, um, the rate of profit does continue to fall, and they still need to find new ways to exploit us, which is why the advent of the gig economy has been so pronounced destructive. Yes. You wanted to see me? Yeah, take a seat, Kevin. As you know, we here at Red Scare Media always try to keep it real. I don't want to be a downer. After all, this is a cool place to work with cool people, a relaxed environment. Especially for us managers. That said, recently we've had several issues with you. There have been a couple incidents of you running behind schedule. 
There was that cruddy lighting on the last video. Our last YouTube video got three dislikes. And just this morning, client emailed and said that the promo you shot for them is too loud. Now what can we do about all this, Kevin? Okay, Jerry, uh, how about I handle these in order? Alright, first off, quite frankly, your schedules are a joke. The last time I was behind on a project, it's because you told me about it the day before you wanted it. Then there was the time where, when I was supposed to pass my project up to you, you left town for a week to look into partnering with a company that makes cheap, crappy knives out of better knives, while refusing to check your email. And yes, sometimes things come up in my home life that make working on stuff here impossible. But even then, if you gave me more time to get started earlier, that wouldn't be a problem. Oh, uh... I guess you have a point, man. Also, when you put the knife company that way, it seems like a pretty dumb idea. I guess I can work on being more available and giving you more ample time to work on the projects I pass you. Still, there was that lighting issue. When the finished product gets to me, I expect it to be immaculate. I'll be honest, I really don't know what you're talking about specifically. Is this one of those times where the only feedback you offered was, it looks off, fix it? You know, when you don't give me anything specific to work with, I try to make things look as good as possible by my standards. If you gave me more specific descriptions about what you didn't like about a decision, I'd be glad to adjust it. That being said, I really can't do a whole lot with, this is bad. That's, um, also fair. Wow, I guess I never realized how bad I was at communicating and taking charge on projects. I'll try to be more descriptive in the future, Kevin, but about that public opinion on the YouTube video. You know I can't possibly control the opinions of internet strangers. The video has almost 400 likes, so three dislikes seems pretty trivial to me. Some people just like shitting on other people's work. You know, I guess I never thought about it that way. Maybe it's too easy for me to lose sight of the bigger picture in this office. You're right, you're doing a great job if the ratio of people who like us to don't is 100 to 1. Uh, the only other concern is the client. Do you mean the computer illiterate guy who wanted a new promo for his furniture store? If he thinks the audio is too loud, has he considered turning down his volume? You know, that makes a lot of sense. I'll email him back. Kevin, you've given me a lot to think about. From now on, I'm going to be more fair and equitable in this workplace. I'm going to put in my fair share of time and make sure everything works in a way that takes care of you guys. Now, about your next project... Ex excuse me, what are you guys doing barging into my office? We've been sent by the corporate leaders to escort you off the premises and take you to the reconditioning center. The, the reconditioning center? You don't know? Any supervisory staff that try to accommodate the workers are seen as a potential threat to the company. Don't worry, you'll see your wife and kids again in three months. What the hell's going on? Kevin! Kevin, you're getting this, right? You're recording it? This is fucked up! Arnie, smash the drone's phone. That's better. Can't have any evidence. What the hell? You can't just drag people away. You're not the Gestapo. You're quite right, Kevin. They're even better. They're a private, corporate-backed security with a near-limitless budget. What's a little authoritarianism when the threat of workers' rights is on the line? Wait, who are you? Oh, don't be silly, Kevin. It's me, Jerry. Now, I need your new TikToks in my email by EOD, and I expect you to double our search engine traffic within the week. I want you to personally apologize to that client. And in the meantime, I'm off to meet with a Saudi Arabian oil magnate to get money for a collection of videos about a dreadful alternate timeline where Russia won the Cold War. Oh, and Kevin, put a smile on that face.
You know we're a cool, laid-back company. Yeah, as uh, as conditions get worse and worse for workers in basically every field, hopefully we'll start seeing more and more people recognize that the only thing we have to lose is our chains, as the old saying goes. But yeah, sadly, it does seem like a lot of the sacrifices that were made by back in the uh, 20s and 30s that got us our f- modern uh, conveniences, such as the five-day, 40-hour work week, are going by the wayside as uh, capital continues to steamroll anything that resembles workers' rights. And, and, and sadly, even if we have another rise-up moment where uh, we get, cap- get a more fair balance of capital, what it will lead to, is, is, as long as capitalism continues to thrive, is another generation of baby boomer-type people who have it well, have it good, and then things getting back to being shitty again all over again. So until we break away from capitalist constructs of how workers' rights work, we'll never be truly free. 100%. You keep chopping off heads, and the Hydra keeps growing them back. Yeah, but uh, yeah, as Kyle said, it does it does seem like we might be heading towards the, I mean, more billionaires and even tr- a tr- a trillionaires soon. And unless we actively unify as workers and tell them we're not going to give you our labor if we're not going to see the fruits of that mm-hmm. labor— there, nothing will change in our benefit. Anyway, yeah. Any politician or rich person who tells you that they're in your corner is lying. They are. Before we go, I just want to close out with this one thing that I I don't know if this is probably going to, if it will make it, but and uh, we're saying. this last bit. Uh, in the brief moments of history where labor did have power, where precarity, if it wasn't eliminated, could be limited, the force which created these bettered conditions was labor organization. We need to acknowledge that. We need to acknowledge that a political organization is not limited to electoral politics, is not limited to mutual aid. It has to be also including of meeting with your fellow workers, meeting with people you stand alongside. If you're a gig worker like me, meeting with people uh, who share this kind of precarity, and working together because it's militant unions, it's strikes, and it was violence against the property of the owner that created things like the weekend, the eight-hour day, the 40-hour work week that gave us your vacation. And they made sacrifices. A hundred-plus years ago, they made sacrifices. People went hungry. People died in the cold. And we took all of those benefits for granted. And now, today, we're working harder for less real pay than people in the 70s and the 60s and before then uh, in this horrible moment this deep moment of labor's recess in power we can see how important it is to show class solidarity between political tendencies you know i don't care if you're an anarchist or a communist or if you're a sock dem if you're even a liberal if you're going to be or a conservative you know if you're in a union and you're willing to recognize that labor power needs to be increased i will set aside whatever issues i have with your beliefs in power. We can take that on as another day, but building labor and building organization between us is one of the best and most effective ways that we can counter the seemingly unstoppable march towards like a new neo-feudal world where we're going to be tied ever closer and ever more precariously to the whims of our most direct controlling capitalist lord. It's definitely a time where uh, our closing slogan holds more weight than even on a normal episode, even though it's always relevant to just being people, especially in regards to labor. The most important things that we can share with each other are love and solidarity. That's right. Love and solidarity, y'all. We hold these truths to be self-evident. 
that all men and women are created equal, endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, including life, liberty, etc. The villain took on many forms. Life, liberty, etc. I'm especially honored to share the stage with Brittany and Jordan and Nathan and Margaret Catherine. I, uh, I love those barrettes in here, man. I'll tell you what, look at her. She looks like she's 19 years old, sitting there with a, like a little lady in a race car. Life, liberty, etc. But America is unique. Of all nations in the world, we're the only nation organized based on an idea. Every other nation you can define by their ethnicity, their geography, their religion, except America. America is born out of an idea. Life, liberty, etc.